Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be back with you this week. Sorry about missing last week. We missed the story of Jacob, which Jacob's a pretty important figure. So long story short, he gets his name changed to Israel. Uh, He was kind of a petulant, deceptive child, and God used him anyway. Boom. There's the story of Jacob. We got it all. So that is what we missed last week. Um, Good old Jacob and Esau wrestling with uh, an angel, all that kind of stuff, getting tricked by his uncle, a lot of stuff. We'll talk a little bit about the uncle part here, but we have moved on to one of the more interesting sons of Jacob, Joseph. So today's story of Joseph. Joseph's story is one of the most important in all of scripture, in my opinion. I hope not to use metrics like that too often. I know that I talked about how that you can't understand the whole Bible if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant. I hold to that, that this is one of the best stories in all the Bible. I hold to it. All right. By the end of the year, who knows? Maybe I have like 50 things I say are the most important. I don't know, but this one's pretty good and it's very important. Side note, uh, we are going to run through 37 through 50 uh, chapters um, in Genesis, chapters 37 through 50. So obviously it's a lot of ground to cover and we're not going to be able to cover all the details. What I would encourage you is sometime in the near future, um, read the entirety of 37 through 50, uh, because there's going to be so many things we have to skip over and leave out that you miss a lot of the story. But uh, we're going to try to hit as many of the points as we can. But at some point in your own time, in your own scripture reading, just take some time to read that. There's no way anybody can read through the story of Joseph and not relate to him in some aspect of his life, um, that there aren't themes in his story that we can't relate to. So I would highly encourage you to do that for your own edification. But we'll try to get through, at least we'll get the the big major bullet points in place so that you can um, fill it in a little bit as you read it and have an idea of what's going on. So Mr. Joseph in chapter 37 kind of starts out like this. We'll read verses 2 through 4 to start. It said, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay. So there's some background here that is very important from Jacob's life that explains this a little bit. It said that he loved him because he was the son of his old age. That's part of it. But the other part is far more complex. So Jacob gets sent by his mother to live with her brother Laban. So Laban is Jacob's uncle. So he lives with Laban and works for him and is going to take a wife from among his family. Remember, that's pretty common in ancient Near East culture. And he really liked Rachel. Now, Rachel was the younger sister. The older sister was Leah. So Jacob said, hey, Laban, uh, I know I'm supposed to marry Leah, but I'm not as attracted to her. So I would like to marry Rachel and I will work for you for seven years if you will let me marry Rachel. And Laban um, says yes. But all the while, he schemes, and when it comes to the end of seven years, he gives Leah to Jacob in secret, sends her in with, I think, some sort of um, face covering on their wedding night. And so he ends up with Leah instead of Rachel, but he still loved Rachel the most. So he worked seven more years to get Rachel. 
So he really loved Rachel a lot. He worked 14 years in order to have the right to marry Rachel. And from all we know, it's just because she was prettier, which I don't know. Jacob, Jacob's a complicated guy. Well, in that case, I guess he's not terribly complicated, but he's sometimes you're like, Jacob, what are you doing, man? But that's the story. And so he finally gets Rachel as his wife, but it's um, many, many years later. And then I, I'm not super familiar with the story of the Boleyn girls. I'm sure maybe some of you who are interested in that kind of thing are. So you might be able to correct me here. But Rachel and Leah kind of have a Boleyn girl rivalry where they keep trying to have more kids or have the right kid or have a boy. I don't, I don't know, but it gets real complicated. And Rachel and Leah are basically competing to be the favored wife by bearing more children, which Leah... Um, God shows a lot of favor to Leah since nobody else likes her apparently. And she actually does have a lot of sons, but the first child, well, I guess the first son, maybe there's another one, but maybe there's a daughter. Sometimes they don't get mentioned, but the first son that Jacob has with Rachel is Joseph. So that is why Joseph is the favorite because it's from his favorite wife. Again, come on, Jacob, let's show these ladies some respect here. But that's the case. And Joseph um, apparently likes to tattle on when his brothers are out um, skipping stones instead of watching the sheep. And so they kind of hated him because he was the favorite and he was a tattletale. Um, and so Joseph also gets a robe of many colors. Now, this is very important. This is a soapbox of mine. I've been waiting over a year to get to get on this soapbox at the right time. My moment has arrived. So endure with me here. I've probably talked about it before because I just couldn't wait. If you were to ask just a normal lay person, like, oh, do you know anything about Joseph in the Bible? They'd be like, oh, yeah, he has a coat of many colors. That is true. However, it may be the least important thing that happens in all of Joseph's life. Joseph's life, as we were about to find out, has so many meaningful things that happen that this coat has really just apparently just captured the minds of the American Christian. And they're just very interested in coloring and wondering how many colors were on there and what they were that... That's the thing that people know about Joseph, even though really all it is is like a catalyst. That's really all the coat effectively is. It's a gift that serves as a catalyst for some jealousy. So many more important things are going to happen in Joseph's life. And we always remember the coat and the coat is not that important. There you go. All right. That wasn't as bad as I thought. Soapbox is over. Um, the coat is going to spark some jealousy, though overall is unimportant. That's mostly what my soapbox is there. Don't focus on the coat. So to compound the problem of him being the favorite and getting a coat and tattling on his brothers, Joseph also has some dreams um, where his brothers end up serving him. So I think um, one, they're like sheaves in the field. Yeah, it says there in verse seven that they were sheaves in the field bowing down. Um, and then one, there's like uh, stars bowing down to him. And he's basically, uh, y'all are going to be my servants. And so... I guess that was probably the last straw for Joseph's brothers. They decide to take action. So he's going out to check on them at Jacob's behest. And they decide they are going to kill him. They said, we're done with this guy. We are going to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest, we mentioned Reuben when we talked about uh, the primogeniture of the New Testament or Old Testament. Now remember, Reuben is the oldest, but is not ultimately going to end up being the most important, which is kind of the point. Just like Jacob, he was not the oldest. Reuben, however, does take a, a firstborn child action here and says, come on, guys, we can't straight up kill our brother. But they decide to leave him to die in a pit instead. 
So this is Ruben's solution. Like, I, I guess maybe Ruben was a clean freak and didn't want to get his hands literally dirty. Because um, throwing him in a pit to die is really not uh, a much better solution. But that's what they decide. And then apparently Ruben is off doing something else. And some uh, slavers come by. And Judah makes the choice that, hey, let's just go ahead and sell him to these slavers. These slavers are Ishmaelites. Now, if you remember the story of Isaac, um, Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abram um, by his uh, by his maid handmaid um, that they when they weren't willing to um, wait for Sarah to conceive because they didn't believe she would. They brought in Hagar and Hagar bore Ishmael. Um, and God blessed Ishmael, even though he got kicked out of the house. Anyways, these are his descendants. So they're effectively pretty close cousins. Um, and they sell him to their cousins. And uh, Joseph gets taken to Egypt. Okay, so that's, and that's just the beginning. Joseph's already had a tough time, but that's just the beginning for old Joseph here. So the house that he gets sold into is the house of this guy named Potiphar. So he ends up a servant in Potiphar's house. Uh, side note. Uh, growing up, one of our euphemisms for the bathroom was Potiphar's house in our house growing up. So that's a fun one if you want to use that with kids or something. Because it has like potty in the name. You get it. Anyway, he goes to Potiphar's house, the literal one, not the euphemistic one, meaning the bathroom. And uh, he's there as a servant. But as it will become a theme with Joseph, he is so good at whatever he is asked to do that uh, he ends up being put in charge of all of the household. Now, Potiphar, I believe um, he is like a, a captain of the guard or something like that. So he's a very important person. So it's not like he just has this little uh, small, small house. He's probably got quite a few people in his employ. So for him to be over the entire house is a pretty big deal for Joseph. Um, and, you know, Potiphar is not the only one whose eye Joseph caught. Let's read in chapter 39, verse 6. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So Potiphar's wife thinks that Joseph's a nice looking fella and uh, she's really hounding him to um, come and sleep with her. So lie with is, uh, speaking of euphemisms, that's what the, one of the ones that the Bible will use for uh, sexual interaction is to lie down with somebody. So um, she keeps kind of coming after Joseph and time and time again, he says no. Uh, but then one day she um, is like rips a garment off of him and he runs away. And she uses that as a reason to say, well, he was actually trying to assault me. So he gets accused of doing exactly what he had been resisting this whole time. And guess who they're going to believe? They're not going to believe Joseph, right? So Joseph is thrown into jail for something he didn't do. So as he did well with all that God had given him to steward at Potiphar's house, um, as he deals kindly with Potiphar's wife and does not give in to that temptation. Um, and eventually he is punished for it and thrown into jail. So now Joseph is in prison and guess what? 
he ends up in charge of the prison. Basically, it says that the person in charge of the prison, if he had anything that needed done and it was in Joseph's uh, under Joseph's umbrella, he didn't even worry about it because Joseph was trustworthy. And so he's basically like helping run the prison as a prisoner. That's just the kind of guy Joseph was, apparently, in the, what, the positions that God put him in. So um, eventually he ends up, um, he's got two fellow prisoners that have dreams. So he has one from a cupbearer, and then he has one from a baker. So the cupbearer tells him a dream, and Joseph interprets it to mean, hey, you're actually going to be uh, restored here in a couple of days. Back to your job. And then the baker, who had a dream too, heard what he said to the cupbearer. And he was like, hey, I had a dream too. It was like this. And Joseph's like, ooh, actually, you are going to be killed in a couple of days. And so that's what happens. And all Joseph asks, this is all he asks of the cupbearer. This is what he says to him in chapter 40, verse 14 and 15. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, which of course is a prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Okay, so he says, hey, this is what's going to happen when you get there. If you wouldn't mind, just drop a line in Pharaoh's ear and let him know I'm not such a bad guy. I didn't do anything wrong. And so then it happens just as Joseph said, but in verse 40, 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then two whole years pass. So he interprets the dream for this cupbearer. And he asks him just one simple thing. Just tell Pharaoh about me. And he forgot. Oh, man. Should have written it down. But you can imagine for Joseph, again, a person who up to this point has been maybe a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit too cocky in front of his brothers about how his dad loves him so much. Um, and you know, maybe he's a little bit of a tattletale. That's basically the crimes he's committed. And he's ended up in uh, being sold into slavery and placed in prison. So I don't think in terms of the scale of justice that we would say that he has re received a very fair shake, right? But the story's not over. More is coming. So then guess who else starts dreaming? Pharaoh starts dreaming. And you know, he talks to his folks and um, the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Um, they can't figure it out. They can't figure out what the dream means. And it's at this moment that the chief cupbearer remembers. He said, oh, wait, Pharaoh, there was this guy in prison who interpreted dreams. Maybe he could help you out. So finally, the cupbearer follows through and he remembers Joseph. And they bring him in. So Joseph interprets these dreams. So Pharaoh had two dreams, which Joseph is going to tell him that they're effectively the same. Um, but the first one is about seven really plump cows looking really good, ready for slaughter. They get devoured by seven really thin cows. And even though the thin cows devour these giant cows, they don't get any bigger. They're still really thin. Okay. And then basically the same thing happens with some ears of grain. Now, both of those situations are, of course, very unrealistic. Cows cannot have the teeth to be chewing up other cow flesh, nor do... You know that. I don't have to explain this. But the giant ears of grain eat the... Or, I'm sorry, the small ears of grain eat the giant ones, and they don't get any bigger. So he's like, tell me what this dream means. And so what Joseph tells him is basically what God is saying 
He's saying it's going to happen soon, and there's going to be seven really good years. We're going to have a really good crop for seven years. There's going to be an abundance, uh, but that's going to be followed shortly after that by seven years of famine. So what Joseph proposed was that during those years of plenty that they start storing grain, getting ready for the famine. Okay. And so he tells him, you're going to need somebody who's really good with organization to get this done. And just like everybody in Egypt, uh, he puts Joseph in charge. Okay. So he's second in command over the entire kingdom of Egypt. Now, I can't help but wonder that in Egypt, obviously God is superintending all this. So, but we take that out and we think, okay, so these Egyptians, like they have a slave. He's like, oh, okay. How about you be in charge of my house? And then there's a prisoner. He's like, hey, how about you be in charge of my prison? And then there's a slave that went to prison and hey, how about you be in charge of the whole country? Is there just like a giant leadership void in Egypt or something? I don't know. How, or maybe Joseph just exuded great leadership skills. And again, obviously God was with him, but it does make you wonder just in a vacuum, was there nobody better to do some of these things than Joseph? But hey, here we go. Um, and then everything happens just like Joseph predicted. So there's the seven years of plenty. And he suggested that they take basically a fifth of the grain each year and store it away. And they counted it for a while, but then eventually it gets to the point where they had so much extra grain, they didn't even bother counting it because they were just like full up on grain. So everything happened just like he predicted. And then the famine comes. As if this story wasn't already interesting, it somehow gets more interesting now that the famine starts because Joseph gets some visitors from the land of Canaan, some brothers, his brothers come to Egypt. So they are having the famine also there in Canaan and they need grain. Jacob tells the brothers, hey, go and pick up some grain in Egypt. I heard they got plenty. And so they come and after a second, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So he, again, he's second in command in all of Egypt, and he sees his old brothers, the same ones that sold him into slavery, they're coming to buy some grain. So he kind of starts to mess with them a little bit. So he accuses them of being spies, and I think he kind of uses that as like a, a reason for him to ask all these questions, because um, they probably wonder why he was so curious about who they were and why their father's alive and stuff. Um, so he accuses them of being spies. And I think it's kind of for the purpose of, you know, a veil for these questions that he really wants to know the answer to. So he asks them about their family. He wants to know if his dad's still alive. Um, and then he asks if they have any other brothers and they say, yeah, we've got a younger one. And so what he does is, uh, obviously he's excited to find those things out. Um, but what he tells them is, cause he really wants to meet his younger brother. He sends them back with the grain. Um, and he basically takes one of the brothers, Simeon, as a hostage and says, you can have your other brother back when you bring the youngest and kind of as proof that they weren't lying about it. So what he also does is he secretly in their bags of grain, he puts the money that they paid, he puts it back. Uh, he puts it back in their bag. So they go home with grain and the money. Now they get back home carrying all the grain. And all of this probably took quite a while. Um, the land of Canaan is not super close to Egypt. So, I mean, we're talking perhaps months of travel here. I'm sure somebody has a good idea. I didn't look that up. 
but they get back and they realize the money's back in their sacks and they're like, Oh my goodness. He's, we were telling him we weren't bad guys. And here we are. Some mistake was made and our money's back in their sacks. He's going to think that we stole. And so they're kind of freaking out. Uh, and then they tell Jacob what they need to do. So they tell him, Hey, he's demanding that um, we bring Benjamin back. And he's like, why'd you even tell him Benjamin exists? They're like, he asked, I don't know what you're trying to make it seem like we weren't spies. Cause we're not. And so Jacob basically tells them no. Like even though Simeon's over there captured, um, they don't go back until they actually finish all the grain and they need more. So it's kind of like a last resort. And so uh, Reuben and Judah both promise Jacob that they're going to keep Benjamin safe at all costs. And Reuben even says, if Benjamin dies, you can kill my sons, which seems an odd trade for all involved, but that's what he offers. And I guess Jacob was pleased at that for some reason again come on Jacob just just want a little more a little more out of you but he also sends them with twice the money so basically if they you know if they were accused of having stolen the first time well they've got the money this time too and uh he also sends them with some gifts to give Joseph as a present now again none of them know that it's Joseph but uh some of the gifts were the same things that the Ishmaelites were trading Uh, it said that uh, there was like some gum and myrrh and then one other thing that like overlaps in this list of the things they were trading and the things that are being brought back as gifts. So you have to think that maybe they traded Joseph and he's very familiar with these things because maybe he smelled the myrrh on his way to Egypt. Maybe he's got one of those kind of olfactory memories associated with that. So there's some irony there, but they head back to Egypt. So they return. Joseph receives them. Um, he sees Benjamin and, um, he starts to get real misty because he's just so excited. Now, remember, Benjamin, well, I don't say wrong. So the reason that Benjamin is especially special to Joseph is that he's Rachel's second son. So they are, uh, he's the youngest, which is something he's never met him, which is something, but also they're full-blooded brothers, whereas for all the others, he's uh, half-brothers with them. So this is like a, a full-blood brother. So there's a lot of excitement, but he basically is so excited to see him that he starts to cry and he has to like excuse himself so he can go and weep. There's a lot of weeping from Joseph in this story. It's very nice. So he, uh, they meet his requirements and he frees Simeon and then he brings the brothers in for a feast and they still, all this, they still don't know who he is. He knows who they are. He still, they still don't know who he is. So um, some, just a lot of this, just building tension, like, Oh, what's he going to find out? So they have a feast. Um, he doesn't eat with them because apparently it was like really shameful for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews. Um, so he eats separately. Um, but they have this feast. He treats them really well. Um, they get Simeon back. They're there with Benjamin. They're getting treated well, everything like that. So then Joseph tells the people, fill their sacks again. He says, fill it with grain and then put their double portion of money back. So he's not even taking half. He says, give them all the money back. Um, but then he tells them, to put his silver cup in Benjamin's bag and then to send them on their way. And after they get a little way down the road to chase him down and confront them about it. So that's what they do. They're going back. Everything's good. Apparently these guys haven't learned to check their bags before they leave. Um, after the last time, maybe somebody would have found it, but Joseph's guys go and they follow him and they open up all the sacks and they find that Joseph's cup is in there and they say, do you not know that this is a huge deal? So Joseph says, well, I'll let you guys go, but y'all got to leave Benjamin here. 
So those are his terms. And I think that uh, probably what Joseph is after is, no, let's remember, we don't really have, he's happy to see his brothers and everything. We don't have like a full report at this point that he's forgiven them or that he's over it. Um, so I think probably what was going on here is that Joseph was hoping that Benjamin could stay as his servant. That's the guys. And then he'd get to have his brother with him, the one who hadn't wronged him at all. I think that's what his strategy is here. But Judah steps in, gives this impassioned plea on behalf of Benjamin and basically says, if, if we don't come back with Benjamin, it's going to kill our father. Like he's going to just be so devastated. He's probably just going to die. So he gives this really impassioned plea on behalf of Benjamin, um, which you have to think that Joseph is probably really emotional hearing, not just the idea of his dad dying, but also seeing his brothers stand up for Benjamin the way he probably wishes they would have stood up for him. Um, but also maybe seeing the growth that they've gone through. Um, and maybe Benjamin was a little less arrogant than Joseph, but it's at this point that Joseph finally breaks down. He tells all the Egyptians, get out of here. Um, and he just breaks down and tells them it's me, it's Joseph. And he just weeps uncontrollably. He grabs Benjamin's neck and he weeps and gets all his brother and he just weeps. And basically he tells them, all right, y'all, we're, y'all are moving in. Okay. Y'all are going to be moving in here and that's what we're going to do. And so he tells them to get the whole, go back, get the family and to bring them into Egypt and to be under Joseph's care. So they all move back to Egypt. Joseph is reunited with his father and they weep. There's so much weeping because he's so happy. Um, and about 70 people then move into the land of Egypt about of their relatives. And so they live there for quite some time. And now let's fast forward because honestly, we still we still don't have this big moment of reconciliation between Joseph and the brothers. He does tell them, I know that God like used this so that um, I could be here to provide for the family. I know that that's how God used this. But at the same time, what we will see at the very end of Genesis is there's this is not still a fully resolved issue. So after Jacob dies, that's in chapter 50, all the way there at the end. Starting in verse 15, this is what happens. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Remember the dreams? But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So the end of this whole narrative is this dream that Joseph had that his brothers would want, would bow before him, would serve him. It's come to pass, but it's taken on a whole new meaning because instead of Joseph lording it over that he got to be the one in charge, now he has 
totally changed places and says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So looking back on Joseph's life as he grows, as his brothers go, this whole thing that caused the issue between them to start this dream and the way that he walked through it. Now it's all come to fruition. And instead it's with humility and love. And in this moment of grace and provision that this fully comes to pass. And so this dream was of course true. It was given by God, but it's totally different than any of them would have imagined. And instead the one who gets all the glory is God. Now, like I said, I think there's just a, a bunch of applications from the story of Joseph. Um, one is God took care of Joseph in the midst of his suffering. He was suffering unjustly. There was no, no thing he did deserved what happened to him. I think we can all agree there. Not that he was perfect, but it didn't deserve what he got. It was an unfair punishment. But God took care of him even in the midst of that suffering. He sustained him. And he blessed him with great responsibility and great stature, even in the midst of that. Anytime we are in the midst of suffering, we want it to be over as quickly as possible. And that's very natural for us. But we have to also recognize this supernatural thing that happens in suffering. And it's that God is given glory and that we are grown into people that are more like Jesus. We shouldn't resent suffering, even though it's difficult. We know that God works in suffering. And we should also never believe that well, if I do everything right, I'm never going to have to suffer. Uh, suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's been a part of the life of God's people from the very beginning. And so there's no, well, if I do good, good things are going to happen to me, a kind of a Christian karma. All of us go through suffering and it's not always deserved. Second, one time uh, somebody used this uh, kind of metaphor that just to bloom where you're planted. And that's another thing that we see here from the story of Joseph. Joseph obviously wasn't in the ideal circumstances that he would have chosen for himself. But even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, he was who he was. He used the gifts that God gave him. He used the offices that God gave him to the best of his ability wherever he ended up, even though his circumstances were difficult. We're going to find ourselves in the same place where we are in a situation whether that maybe be a, a job, a health situation, some other difficulty that we would never have chosen for ourselves, that we are honestly maybe that we are hoping to get out of. But at the same time, we have to realize that God's placed us there for a reason. And that doesn't mean that we're never allowed to leave any place unless we're forced out because, well, God put us there. God also can be in the changing of a situation and a changing of a job and a the resolution of a health situation, whatever it may be. But just like Joseph, we should have this idea, wherever I'm planted, I'm going to do what I can to bloom. So I'm going to be who I am, who God's created me to be, to serve God faithfully in the midst of wherever I am, and not to lose hope in that, but to say, this is where God has me for now. How can I bloom? Not for so everybody can look at me and say, oh, look how pretty, but rather, how can I bloom in a way that gives off this fragrance of the gospel? And then one of the also more most important things about this is the highlight of how much greater is forgiveness than revenge? How much greater is it in the kingdom of God to give undeserved forgiveness to someone versus to 
take revenge. Joseph had the opportunity for both. He had the opportunity to take revenge on his brothers in countless numbers of ways that he could have taken out revenge. He could have sold them into slavery. He could have sent them home with no grain to starve. He could have kept them captive in Egypt. He could have done anything he wanted. He was second in command. Pharaoh wasn't going to stop him, but he chose forgiveness. He chose to provide for them, to forget the things that they had done and to instead move forward from that. And most of us aren't in the position to take the kind of revenge that Joseph had the opportunity for, but we have our own devices, right? We have our own ways that we try to take revenge on others, those who have mistreated us. But what does it look like for us to pursue forgiveness instead of revenge? In the kingdom of God, there is no kingdom of God without forgiveness because the kingdom of God is made up of the people of God and the people of God only enter it because of the forgiveness that we have received from God. We have to remember that we are not just people in a position to forgive, but we have been forgiven. If we have trusted in Jesus, we have been forgiven. And he's called us to forgive and to love as he forgave and loved. So even when it's the hundredth time, even when you know it's going to happen again, choosing forgiveness, not choosing ignorance to say, oh, it didn't happen, it wasn't that bad, but to truly pursue forgiveness is something that we learn from this story that is true to all situations of life. Most of us won't have the situations that Joseph had to have to forgive, but some of us, no, all of us have things to forgive that are difficult. But that's what God's call is on our life. And because of what Jesus has done, we can grant that forgiveness. So I hope you'll take some time to read through this whole story of Joseph all together to see what it is maybe that God is calling you to, through the Holy Spirit, to apply from this story. But what we ultimately see is Joseph's more than just a coat. He's a great example of how God uses his people, even in the midst of incredible difficulty, how he gives us the opportunity to be who he's created us to be, even in unideal circumstances. And he's made a way for us to forgive instead of to pursue revenge. (music) 